Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gohm. I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly... Repercussions follow last month's U.S. Supreme Court ruling in favor of interstate shipping of alcohol. Global wine production reaches record highs in 2018. England gets on board as the demand for canned wine continues. Cool Climate Association created in later Chile. Vineyard acquisitions continue as Washington State's Chateau Saint-Michel closes on Napa Valley Vineyard Purchase. And as ever, our Wine of the Week. Lawsuits have been filed in four U.S. states that seek to overturn current state legislation that prohibits interstate shipping for alcohol retailers to promote free trade of alcohol products across the country. The cases involving Indiana, Kentucky, New Jersey, and Texas follow the Supreme Court ruling last month in the case of Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association v. Thomas, which overturned protectionist alcohol licensing laws in Tennessee that prohibited alcohol retailers not resident in the state from setting up operations. The decision signaled a new status quo, that states must treat in-state and out-of-state alcohol businesses the same and therefore opening the door to interstate alcohol shipping. In all four cases, current state legislation allows in-state wine retailers to ship to consumers, yet prohibits out-of-state retailers from doing so. These laws were technically made unconstitutional with the new ruling, but it will take time before change is made nationwide, as each state's legislature is unique and will have to be challenged individually by suing or lobbying legislatures. The next states to be targeted by the National Association of Wine Retailers, according to Executive Director Tom Wark, will be Massachusetts, Washington, Arizona, Ohio, Maine, North Carolina, South Carolina, and control state Pennsylvania. So Matthew, wineries earned the right to ship outside of their home state back in 2005 with the Supreme Court decision in Grandholm versus Heald, and now it looks like retailers will eventually get that same privilege. How do you think that will affect the DTC programs of wineries with the increase in competition? Yes, interesting that you should say the increase in competition. We think of the US as being kind of free market, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, but the wine industry is very uncompetitive because of all these state laws. And so this increase in competition is going to have to make uh, both wineries and retailers up their game in terms of the quality of the product that they are selling and also how they market their product as well to get people in. Um, I know someone who has uh, fr- friends and family who own wine shops in Tennessee and they've already um, started to um, up the quality of the wine that they sell in their in their stores. It used to be just a generic, high volume, very familiar wines like Apothic, but now they're actually bringing in smaller production, higher quality, because they know that retailers from out the, outside the state are going to make the competition much greater. Well, it's going to be a, a long road here, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how things pan out. Yeah, it's going to be a few years before we really see the consequences of all these decisions that are being made that's definitely going to change things. The International Organization of Vine and Wine, the OIV, announced figures from the 2018 vintage this week, which saw production total 292 million hectolitres globally, a 17% increase on 2017. This makes 2018 one of the most productive vintages of the century, despite the plantings of vineyards across the world falling over the last 20 years by 400,000 hectares to 7.4 million hectares. The biggest producer of wine in 2018 was Italy, with nearly 55 million hectolitres, followed by France, 
with nearly 49 million, and Spain with just over 44 million hectolitres, with the USA in fourth with production of 23.9 million hectolitres. Spain has the most land under vine, followed by China, France, Italy and Turkey, although China and Turkey's plantings are mainly for table and dried grapes. Consumption of wine was calculated at 246 million hectolitres, compared to 225 million hectolitres in 2000. The USA remains the biggest consumer of wine, drinking 33 million hectolitres last year, followed by France, Italy, Germany, China and the UK. Germany and the UK are the two biggest importers of wine, although the USA spends more on wine than any other country, with a 30% increase in money spent on wine over the last four years. Finally, the global expansion of wine was shown in the figures comparing exports from 2001 to 2018. In 01, 65 million hectolitres of wine was exported around the world at a value of 12 billion euros, while last year 108 million hectolitres of wine was exported at a value of 31 billion euros. So Katie, these figures show an increased production and consumption of wine, and also that people are spending more on wine. Does that fit in with trends that you've been noticing? Well, yes, I, I think that people are spending more on wine, at least here in the US, that's clear. I think that, you know, maybe with this surplus of wine, um, that wine producers, wine suppliers are becoming a little more savvy in understanding the value of good marketing. I'm seeing a lot of wineries invest more in that, and maybe that's what's convincing consumers to spend a little more. And that's been mirrored in the vineyard, where vineyard managers and growers are much more efficient in maximizing the what they get out of their vines, because plantings have gone down, but production has gone up. So overall, the wine industry is perhaps savvier than it was 20 or 30 years ago, when it made a lot of wine that people didn't want to buy. <laughs> London-based wine merchants Jascots has partnered with Three Choirs Winery in Gloucester to launch what it claims to be the first canned English still wine. The on-premise supplier said the new product launch was in part a response to the increasing demand for sustainable packaging among consumers and should appeal to more than just those looking for a picnic, um, but they're going to be sold in on-premise outlets as well. The range includes a dry white, a blend of Madeleine Angevin, Phoenix, and Seville Blanc grapes. Rosé made from Phoenix, Seville Blanc, and Rondo, and a red blend of Regent, Rondo, and Triumph grapes. The supplier partner, Three Choirs, is one of England's oldest vineyards. UK drink supplier Broadland Wineries is seeing great success with single-serving wines, including a Mini Vino Sparkling Rosé, which, in its new 200ml can packaging, saw increase in sales of 6,000% last year. The company reported Mini Vino as one of the key drivers behind its 11.5% increase in revenue for year ending March 2019. So Matthew, what do you think about this trend with cans? Is it real? Is it sustainable? Um, I was traveling in uh, Illinois and Chicago a couple of months ago and spoke with a retailer who didn't feel that it was a consumer-driven product, but rather supplier-driven, and that you know, those suppliers are bringing more and more cans to market. He didn't quite see the demand from the consumers. Yeah, I agree with that analysis. I think it's spot on. My experience, um, you, you don't find consumers coming into a shop looking for cans. What you do find are distributors and wineries coming in looking to sell the cans. I've, I've found that there's a place for cans, for picnics and for beaches, but for most 
people, they pick up the can, look at it, oh, that's interesting, and then put it back down again and go and buy something else. So I'm not sure how sustainable this trend is, but it is a trend. Um, and maybe they'll find their niche in the market, but I don't think they'll ever become a mainstream everyday drinking habit. Well, it's kind of like Apple, right? I mean, you all these products that you never knew you had to have until they came in the market and suddenly you had to have them. Yeah, that's a good analogy, but I don't think it's going to happen with cans. Eight wineries in the cool sub-region of Leda in Chile this week formally announced the creation of Vinas de Valle de San Antonio, with the aim of highlighting the cool climate of Leda. The young sub-region was the first zone to be created within San Antonio back in 1988, and is heavily influenced by the nearby Pacific Ocean and the Humboldt Current. Since the late 1980s and 90s, Leda wineries have led the trend for cool climate wines, and the association has been formed to continue the focus on styles of wine quite different from those made in warm inland Chile, with plantings of Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Riesling, Pinot Noir and Syrah. The eight wineries in the association, which between them own 500 hectares across San Antonio, are Casa Marine, Matetich, Vigna Leda, Vigna Ventiscaro, Chocolan, Hacienda San Juan, Casas de Bucalemu and Garces Silva, and they hope to attract new members to bolster the group. They aim not only to promote the wines of the region, but also to attract visitors for food and wine tourism. The association will be an official part of the government-funded wines of Chile. Uh, Katie, Chile has a reputation for fruity, easy drinking, inexpensive reds. Do you think consumers are open to trying different styles of wine from Chile? I do, Matthew. I think that you know consumers, especially in the millennial uh, demographic, are looking for more wines from different places, willing to try new things, but at the end of the day, they want quality and they want value, which I think uh, Chile is very well positioned to offer. And they're also interested in wines with food. And I think this style of wine that you're describing sounds like it's going to be spot on with psalms, with restaurants, all on-premise accounts. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. And also it's interesting that they focus on bringing tourists into the area. We've been to Casablanca and the surrounding wine regions. Do you think that's somewhere that tourists would like to visit? For sure. I mean, on top of our visit, you know, I was there for a year and I noticed a lot of people coming in, lots of outdoors people, people wanting to hike in the glaciers down in the south, visit the deserts up to the north, and then you've got the coast and you've got the mountains all at your fingertips. So a lot of you know, younger travelers, but I think they'd love to wine taste along the way. Yeah, and we actually visited one of these eight wineries, Matetich, and that had um, a great tasting room, which would be very uh, popular for tourists. Y hablan inglés, que es muy importante para el turismo. Washington State's pioneering winery Chateau Saint-Michel has purchased Greenwood Vineyards in Calistoga for an undisclosed price. This is the fourth California property in Saint-Michel's global portfolio, the third in Napa Valley. The other holdings include Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, which they own in partnership with the Antonori family, Concrete in St. Helena, and Patson Hall in Sonoma. The previous owners of Greenwood Vineyards are James and Jill Mooney, who managed the property since the 1980s. Planted to 56 acres of vines, primarily Cabernet Sauvignon, with some Merlot and Valdiguille, the vineyards will serve as grape source for Stag's Leap Wine Cellar's Artemis wine. So Matthew, we were talking about vineyard acquisitions a couple of weeks ago. Um, do you notice any any new trends with these? Is, are more happening as of late? Yeah, I think 
especially in Napa Valley, a lot of vineyard owners and winery owners are um, coming of an age where they're looking to retire. And if their children aren't interested, then they have to sell. And of course, in Napa, land is very expensive. So this is a great time to sell and just take the money. Yes, uh, succession planning uh, seems to be an issue among wineries and vineyard owners. Um, you know, children just don't seem interested in carrying the torch, so they have to figure out what to do next. Yeah, and managing a vineyard or a winery is a lot of hard work. And so um, you have these big corporations coming in, they have the money, they have the resources, they have the staff. It makes life a lot easier just to sell and move on. <laughs> for our wine of the week, which comes from Champagne. And we all love Champagne, don't we, Katie? Mm, and this one is super tasty. The producer is L'Armandier Bernier. The name of the wine is Latitude. It's an extra brute, a blanc de blanc, non-vintage. And I brought this home last week for Katie to drink. And you loved it. You said it's one of the best wines you've tried in quite some time. Mm-hmm. Why was that? Well, I just think the acidity was so fresh and it had some nice fruit on it, but it had that you know, typical of champagne, brioche, kind of toasty notes, all super well integrated. And this is a very interesting producer, uh, small, family-owned, family-operated. They've been biodynamic since 1999, and that's quite unusual in champagne because it's the difficult growing conditions. It's hard to be organic or biodynamic, although a a lot of small producers are moving in that direction because they really want to be sustainable as possible. And as Katie mentioned, it's a Blanc de Blanc, so all Chardonnay, And they almost exclusively work with Chardonnay. 90% of the grapes are Chardonnay, so they really perfected their craft with that grape variety. And then one final interesting thing I like about this wine is that it's made from a perpetual reserve started in 2004. It's almost like a Solera system where they're adding wine each year and then taking wine out to make for the blend. And it makes a really uh, consistent but very tasty and balanced wine. So what's the oldest part of the blend in this wine? They started it in 2004, so 15 years ago, and it's ongoing. Well, cheers to that. So that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gore. We'll catch you next week on Wind Up Weekly. See you next time.